Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and a warm welcome to the last episode of Book Off in Series 7. A very good episode to go out on, I think. It's the literary podcast with the difference with me, Joe Haddo, and I will be the ringmaster for the upcoming War of the Words, which will ensue between our two guests a little later on. My first guest is an award-winning journalist and author who worked in newspapers and television before becoming a best-selling crime novelist. Here to tell us about his latest book, The Night Gate, it's Peter May. Hello. Hello there. And our second guest is the author of Rules for Perfect Murders and The Kind Worth Killing, both Richard and Judy Book Club picks, and here to tell us about his latest thriller, Every Vow You Break. It's Peter Swanson. Hello to you, Peter. Hello. Uh, We're connecting... I believe, Massachusetts with France and London. Peter, 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 Peter. Yes, nice to, <laughs> nice to meet you, Peter, in France. Uh, nice to meet you too. Yeah, we were just having a very interesting discussion about the, the late Donald Trump. Yes. Uh, uh, anything particular that, that uh, we, we missed out on? I, I should say to the listeners, I, I have left these two fabulous authors waiting. I was a little late. Uh, and therefore, you know, you've probably dis- you've probably put the world to rights in, in my absence. We did. We were sort of talking about, um, well, he's, he's not quite late, but he has sort of disappeared off the public consciousness. I mean, he has here in the States for sure. Um, you know, as we said, he, they, they removed his Twitter. They, they took away his megaphone and that's yeah. made a difference. But yeah, and, um, and it's an enormous, uh, I mean, it's an enormous relief for me um, anyway. And I think, um, Peter, you'd say the same thing. Yeah, I think an enormous relief for everybody all over the world. <laughs> and there was a time, I mean, a long old time, not uh, just a few months ago where, you know, you couldn't move for him. And I don't just mean his Twitter account, but just the mentions of him and the news stories about him and just everything. And it, it really, I don't, I don't know if we appreciated it at the time, but it really was quite, um, it was too much, wasn't it? <laughs> it totally dominated the news agenda, didn't it? It was just filled our screens day after day. It actually turned me off watching the news. I, I mean, me too. I'm, I'm, I have been a news junkie all my life, and I just had a belly full of it. Um, you know, between Brexit and and uh, Donald Trump, you know, I just I'd had enough. So, are you feeling? 
I mean, you probably got it even more than us, uh, Peter Swanson, uh, being in the US, possibly not. But uh, are you sort of feeling a sense of, um, <laughs> I don't know, there's, there's a relief, there's a calmness, there's room for yeah, something Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I was saying earlier that... Um, you know, I watch uh, the PBS NewsHour here, which is our, our um, a, a good news program, an hourly news program. And um, lately, you know, I'm seeing stories um, on Europe and Africa and South America and other places because the, the, the news hour is not just being sucked up by whatever latest outrage Trump has said or done um, in pushing the, the news agenda. So, I mean, it's just it, it's. You know, I, Trump's been a, a buffoon in this country for so long. And, you know, prior to him running for president, it was pretty easy to not think about Trump uh, for long stretches of time. <laughs> and then suddenly to have him in your life where you're literally like Trump is in your life every day, no matter. I mean, you can't get away from him. I think we all felt um, a little like the the drunk uncle at the holiday party who um, never left. Um, at, for four years, and just and and not only that, but was was running the country or running the household. I mean, you know, it was it was a um, surreal thing, and I think um, we're lucky to be rid of him. And I think we dodged a major bullet because mm -hmm. I think if he had responded to COVID with anything uh, resembling uh, competence, um, which he did not, I think he'd be still be president of this country. I mean, he had an opportunity. All he had to do was take that seriously. And the man's a germaphobe. He should have, I, you know, I'm surprised yeah. he didn't. But um, <laughs> Surprised maybe, but many of us are relieved that he didn't. If, yeah, If there absolutely. was going to be another four years. So. <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad you sort of, you, got, you had the Trump chat, uh, put the world to rights, and now we can leave his stupid Twitter account behind and, and continue to talk about what we do enjoy, um, which is books and writing and reading and everything that comes with it. So I'm going to ask you um, about what you've been reading lately. We're going to do the book off a little bit later on and find out which two books you're putting up against each other. But first, let's talk about your, your latest work. Um, Peter, I mentioned The Night Gate, and I, I'm, I'm right in thinking this new novel came from being in lockdown. Is that right? It did, yes. Um, sadly, uh, because last year I had planned to write a totally different book, um, which was going to be set on the uh, Norwegian archipelago of Svalbard in the Arctic Circle. Um, and I'd done a lot of prep during the end of uh, 2019 into 2020. Um, I'd, I'd really developed my story and my characters. And I had booked my research trip for last May, um, and I, I was really looking forward to it. I'd bought all my cold weather clothes, everything, and I was intending to come back in June and write the book across the summer. And, of course, along comes the coronavirus, and bingo, the trip gets cancelled. I can't write the book without doing the trip, um, you know, but the publisher's still looking for a manuscript. <laughs> um, and They, they you know, do do that, don't they, the publishers? They do oh, say, where's yeah. my manuscript, quite a lot. They do, they schedule things into, you know. Um, I, so, I mean, I find myself last June sitting, scratching my head, thinking, what on earth am I going to write? <laughs> um, you know, we were in the middle of a lockdown. I couldn't travel for research. Um, and and I, I kind of thought, I've got to write about something that um, I know about already set in places that I know um, and um, that I can do from home here in France without 
going anywhere. Um, and um, <laughs> it was a bit of a tall order, but I eventually came up with an idea which was inspired by a, uh, <clears throat> a visit my wife and I had made to a, um, a, a local exhibition in the town just along the road from us here um, the previous year. And it was an exhibition all about the evacuation of the artworks from the Louvre during the war. Um, and what I hadn't known was that, you know, all this stuff had ended up down in this neck of the woods where I live here in southwest France. Most of the artwork going into a chateau just along the road from me here. Um, and, I, you know, so we were interested to to see this and we went along and we were um, browsing the exhibition and, and suddenly stopped in front of this black and white photograph on the wall of um, a building that looked very familiar. Uh, it was my garage. Um, <laughs> and I thought, what what is my garage doing in this exhibition? Um, so we read the blurb and it turned out that while most of the artworks had gone into the chateau, there were these huge, huge pieces like um, the Wedding Feast at Cana by Veronese and the, 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 the Coronation of Napoleon by David, which were just too big. They had taken them out of their frames and rolled them round wooden poles like telegraph poles for transportation. And they couldn't get them through the doors of the chateau. Uh, so they requisitioned my garage, which has this little apartment above it. It's where I'm sitting talking to you right now because I was in the middle of making it into my kind of creative workspace. And and they fed these priceless works of art through the window to my right here and laid along the length of the floor in the entire building. Now, I mean, it, these are priceless works. And I, I, I still get kind of goosebumps thinking about it. I'm, I'm occupying the same space that these things once occupied. And, um, and it, was, I, it was a great discovery. And I wrote a blog about it. And, um, and I got a phenomenal reaction from readers saying, oh, this would make a great novel. And I, but, you know, at the time, I couldn't see what the novel was. I couldn't see what the story was. It's a great little piece for a local newspaper. But, you know, um, what's the story here? But last June, I sat thinking about it and thinking, well, you know, the subject matter interested people. Let's see if I can turn this into some kind of story that works. And the result of that was The Night Gate. I mean, it's uh, there's so much to talk about there, isn't there? Because it's just such a fascinating <laughs> start to, you know, germ of an idea that's le led to this book. Um, yeah. And we'll come back on and, and talk about the book and ha how all that's influenced it. Um Peter, have you uh, been surrounded by priceless art ever in the place that you're living? Or <laughs> No, I don't have a story like that. And I was sort of, it's, it's funny hearing Peter talk about research um, and abandoning a book because um, you couldn't go on the research trip. I'm sort of a, I feel like I'm, I do almost no re research for my books. Um, I just make it up, but um, and uh, so so I was sort of like, oh, just you should have just made it up. You make up a fake Norwegian, you know, sounding um, village, um, like the rest of us do. Um, yeah, but then you don't get the research trip perks, you know. I know. I, know I Peter didn't get those. to go anyway, but <laughs> no, I know. Um, but yeah, no, no priceless art here. Um, a few uh, old movie posters in my office, and that's about it. <laughs> And you you may not do research, but you do like to set your stories sort of in in the same place or certainly a place that you know, don't you? Well, I do. I mean, all my books have been set um, in sort of New England area. So either in Boston or uh, southern Maine or the north 
uh, coast of Maine. Um, I occasionally, um, you know, set something in, in New York City or um, a couple times in uh, the UK, um, places I'm familiar with. Um, I mean, I think that's partly, I, again, that's partly laziness, which is um, that it's the area I know uh, well. But I think it's also partly that I, I feel like I live in a, a good area for uh, mystery thrillers. Um, the, the generally the New England area is um, good. I mean, it's it's old for America. I mean, it's not old for um, <laughs> Europe, um, but you know, it has an old feel of brick and granite. Um, it's got moody weather. It's got um, you know, loads of lighthouses. Lots of lighthouses, classic. <laughs> little little islands off the coast, classic uh, mystery trope. Yeah, it's yeah. got um, buttoned down um, uh, uh, townsfolk who you know are probably hiding secrets, which is always good. So um, yeah, it's got a lot of elements. So so that's a, another reason I use uh, this area. Let's talk about these new books then, um, specifically the stories. So Peter, you, Peter May, gosh, this is going to get difficult. We should P one and P two, really, shouldn't we, or something? Um, uh, Peter May, you've already told us how this book came about. Before you tell us just a little bit about the new novel, um, what is going to happen with the one that you were planning? Is that sort of now a twenty twenty two proposition in the hope you, you can get? over to, to, to Svalbard? Uh, you know, I've been asked about this, um, not least by my publisher. Um, <laughs> ideas, I, I find, have a, a moment in in your mind, in your stream of consciousness. Mm. They're hot at a certain point in time, and that's when you write them. Um, I think if you hold on to an idea too long, it gets cold. You overthink it; it 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 starts to get away from you. And and I and I have a feeling that's what's going to happen with this one because I'm not going to get to Svalbard this year. No. So it would be spring. You know, it would be it would be a year from now before I I could get there again. Um, uh, and I I somehow I just feel that that's not going to happen. That's fascinating to me because. I don't, I get, I do get, I actually get that, I get what you're saying, and I sort of agree with it, but I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that you know, you've sort of got so far down the road with it, or I assume you had, because you were saying once you came back, you were going to write it, but hmm. is it the sort of, um, the passion for it, the enthusiasm for it that's, that, that's maybe going to run out, or is it just simply because you'll be sitting on it for so long and thinking about it that actually you might just overwrite it or I don't know what I'm just I'm sort of really fascinated by that yeah I mean it's it's hard to say why um I mean I think probably I'm, I'm the same as most writers I come up with a lot of ideas I mean ideas come all the time and I, I jot them down I think of little developments with you know with this work and something seems great you know, at, at twelve o'clock at night, when you when you've been jotting it down in your book, and you read it again in the morning, you think, "Oh, how could I possibly have thought that was worth turning into a book?" Um, and and I kind of feel that that's what's going to happen with the Svalbard story. Um, in a way, I mean, it was the, the story that I was planning was kind of 
dealt with very contemporary issues, particularly climate change, um, and that's not going to have gone away. Mm. Um, but there were other issues that I wanted to deal with that I'm sure um, other people are going to have delved into before I get ever got around to writing it. Um, right. I'm not going to say what they are, but um, just in case I do, no, write well, it. of course, of course. <clears throat> um, but yeah, I don't know. It just it, it already feels as if it slipped away from me. Are you, is this sort of resonating with you, Peter? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, is I, it? Yeah, yeah. And I think the next book that you're going to write is the book that um, is taking up space in your in your brain. Um, that you're sort of. I do a lot of daydreaming about a book prior to writing it, um, and I don't even. You know, I tend to not even jot down ideas. I try and keep it all up in my head, and that way, um, I figure the. You know, the sort of cream rises to the top. I, I'm uh, the, the stuff that sticks with me is probably the good stuff. Right. Um, so, so one of the problems is if you started a book a while ago and put it away, um, you're just not thinking about it anymore. So it's not in your head. Now, I think it can come back. Um, like, because I, I, I have had the experience where I've started and stopped, but then I, it sort of comes back into my head and I, I get ready for a finish. But it doesn't, if you can't force it if it's not going to happen naturally. So, mm. um, I mean, that, so I, I, I'm the exact same way. And I, and similar to Peter, like I get a lot of ideas too. I get constant ideas. Um, so I let, I let, I, I kind of wait to see which idea beats up the other ideas in my, in my <laughs> head. And that's the winner. And that's the one that I have to start writing. Um, so yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to force that. Yeah. I love that idea of a sort of boxing ring of ideas just seeing who who's the heavyweight champion of them all and by the way most of the ideas are, are kind of 98 pound weaklings right. that are um that you know sort of wrestling in there i mean there, there's very few heavyweights um i get a lot of terrible ideas and um but that's the thing i mean you need a lot of ideas because you know you want to get a good one yeah, absolutely right. I'm just that was. Oh, I'm, I'm I'm so glad we covered that because I was sort of quite fascinated. I, so I guess I assumed that if you've had an idea, it'll and, and you were going to work on it. Didn't matter when you sort of picked it up. So that's just really interesting. Um, so Peter, tell us tell us about the Nightgate Day and and, and we know why it's, it sort of came about and how. But just give us a little tease of the story. Well, <clears throat> it's a story that takes place in two timelines. First one's contemporary. Um, uh, it involves the murder of um, uh, a very well-known uh, French art critic in, in a, a house in um, a village which is five minutes away from where I live um, uh, called Caranac. It's here in the, in the lot in southwest France. Um, and um, because I was, uh, you know, having to work up this story um, uh, in, in a hurry, um, I instead of creating a new character, I, I dug an old character out of retirement, Enzo McLeod, you know, who for whom I'd written a series of six books previously, um, and he was literally retired, um, <laughs> yeah. and um, uh, but doing a favour for a friend, he is he goes to uh, this village of Karanak to look at. Um, uh, an area of ground in a park which has been unearthed by a fallen tree to reveal uh, a corpse which is uh, around 70 years old. 
Um, and uh, while he's there, he stumbles across this investigation into a, a murder which has taken place right next door to the park in this house, this art critic. Um, and he gets involved in the investigation of both. Um, and he soon discovers that there is actually a link between the two and uh, these two murders divided by 70 years. And that link is the Mona Lisa. Um, and that is what catapults us back into in time to the, the, the second story thread, uh, which is set in 1940s occupied France um, at a time when both Hitler and his number two Goering um, independently have their eyes on the Mona Lisa. Hitler, for his uh, super museum that he intends to build in Linz in Austria, his hometown, and Goering uh, greedily for his private collection. Um, and they have set their own um, art hounds on the trail of the Mona Lisa to uh, secrete her away from French possession uh, during the course of the war. Um, uh, word of this is leaked out, and um, de Gaulle in London um, recruits a young female art student who'd have been involved in the packing of the artworks uh, in the Louvre just before the outbreak of war uh, to basically go back to France and keep the Mona Lisa safe from the, the, the greedy hands of uh, <laughs> Hitler and Goering. I love it. I just love there's so much in it, you know, and in both timelines. Um, was it was it fun to, to bring McLeod out of retirement? It, well, actually, it was because um, he, he's kind of similar age to me. He, funnily enough, um, I've aged faster than he has. Um, <laughs> We've all aged faster in lockdown. We've all aged faster yeah. in lockdown. Um, but it was it was fun exploring that um, sense of what it's like to be in that certain age bracket, and particularly during a period of um, peril for people in that age group, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. i.e. the pandemic, because that, that's something I didn't ignore when I wrote the book. I mean, it's very definitely set in autumn 2020 uh. during lockdown in France, and, and I've dealt with the issue of the, the virus and the pandemic, not not in, a, in, a, in an obtrusive way, but in a background way, because after all, it is and has been the wallpaper of our daily lives for the last 12, 15 months. Mm. Um, so it seemed that if I was writing a book in a, with a contemporary setting, I couldn't really uh, ignore it. Um, so, so yeah, it was. It, I enjoyed uh, meeting up with him again, and, and it seems quite a few readers uh, quite enjoyed um, uh, reacquainting themselves with uh, my old pal. That's good. And uh, Peter, you sort of you, you looked up then when you you heard that the book was set in August twenty twenty. <laughs> you know, like was that just a sort of wow? You know, so so current, or you haven't known? Well, you're the first, uh, Peter. You're the first. Uh writer I've heard um, who, who said they've set a book during uh, the pandemic. I mean, I think, I think every writer, um, mystery writer, what have you, has to make a sort of decision about how you're, how you're going to move forward um, with an event like COVID that has changed the wallpaper in all of our rooms. Like you said, I mean, are you going to ignore it? Are you going to set all your books in 2018? Are you going to just jump past it? So I, I'm sort of um, interested that you went you went for it. I mean, I I just feel like I, so many of my books, for whatever reason, I'm always people are always meeting strangers in bars and you know right up next to each other, and 
Um, people are going to offices, all the things that normally happen in my books and you know, they don't happen anymore. So, um, (laughs) planes, I know people talking together on planes. I mean, that's over with. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I mean, it's ridiculous. (laughs) Totally ridiculous. Um, so yeah, so I, I think my books will, uh, perpetually be set in 2018 from now on out. Um, but, but, uh, was it, was it hard? Did, did you make lots of mentions to it, Peter, or did you just sort of put it in the background? I tried to keep it in the background and not to make an issue of it. It's just that these are the things that we have to deal with in daily life. The putting in on of masks, taking off of masks, gelling hands. Yeah. I, I mean, it, one of the characters visits the Louvre, for example. Um, and, you know, my, my research showed that the Louvre had instituted a, a one-way system around the museum so that people didn't encounter one another going in the opposite sure. directions. Um, and, uh, you know, things like that, which... Uh, well, actually, I thought it was quite interesting and lent a bit of colour to the book. And I actually, because the book was taking place largely in October um, and the, the denouement was coming up um, and the French government announced that France was going back into lockdown on the 31st of the month, I thought, oh, um, that will make everything not work for me if 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 the story is taking place in November. So it has to be in October. And let's make use of the fact that we're going back into lockdown. Uh, it puts pressure on Enzo to solve the, pro- the, 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 the mystery, the crime, before lockdown uh, basically stops his ability to move around. <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually like, uh, it's almost like, the, the, the restraints of, of COVID have, have sort of helped the story arc for you, said Peter. So you've used well, them to the best of, uh, of your ability I th- there. <laughs> I think, I think you t- I mean, you know, um, necessity is the mother invention. <laughs> it's, I, I, I remember when I used to work in television and uh, we, we used to make a soap opera um, in Scotland um, and I was story editor and, and this, it was a small studio. You could only get four sets into the studio um, and you could only change two of them every week. Um, and But there were different size sets just to complicate <laughs> things and the, so they could only go in in certain combinations. Um, and you had also a list of uh, cast which had been who had been given contracts for so many episodes each. So you had to take all this information on board when you're basically uh, creating your storylines so that you have the set in which to, to, the action to take place and the actors who are contracted uh, are getting the proper number of storylines. So, you, it, I mean, these pressures have nothing to do with the actual storytelling process, but but they put such a pressure on you that they, they became a creative spur. They made you think mm. outside the box. And, and I actually quite enjoyed that challenge. Yeah. I want, I think we might see a few more, especially in the sort of crime thriller genre. I think we might see a few more set in, you know, this last year, but let's. Mm. let's yeah. I mean, you could write a, a very good COVID thrill. I mean, you could, you could take the isolation, yeah. Um, the the not seeing someone you know being holed up in your homes um, the change I mean that could all be a great background to a sort of specific type of COVID thriller I mean um, it's similar in a way I think uh, as a thriller writer sometimes technology gets in the way especially like mm. cell phones where you want someone in, in kind of danger and um, 
and yet they have cell phones. So, I mean, you can do one of two things. You can sort of come up with a clunky device where that, you know, you're suddenly out of service or they drop their cell phone or whatever. That's probably what I do most of the time. But, um, <laughs> and then, or you can, or you can find a way to make a, you know, a good modern thriller that utilizes the sort of creepiness of a cell phone. The fact that it's tracking you, the fact that you can get messages from people you don't know. I mean, there's, um, you know, you can kind of use it, uh, both ways so yeah yeah um and peter too um let's let's talk about your latest novel um it's called every value break just just tease us with this a little bit tell us about abigail and, and her story so abigail is a slightly reluctant bride-to-be um who goes off on her uh bachelorette party i believe you call them hen parties um <laughs> and uh and when she's there um she she has a, a sort of drunken ill-advised one night fling with a stranger with a, a man whose name she doesn't even get um and she kind of decides to put this behind her and go forward with the wedding and not tell her um her groom um, but this this man shows up again in her life and sort of stalks her um, to her honeymoon. Um, so it's <laughs> and then and then um, and then I think it takes some sort of left turns. I hope it does. Um, you know, it starts off as a sort of fatal attraction fatal attraction type of story, and then it sort of goes into different directions once she arrives on this island um, where she's having her honeymoon. And again, and as I just pointed out, it is an island um, conveniently where they don't use cell phones. It's a no-tech island, um, which came in very handy as <laughs> as things got bad for Abigail. Yeah. And you were like, "Oh yes, this is very this is very good news for me." Yes, as I type more words on the page. <laughs> um, your your books have always, to me anyway, Peter, they've always been very filmic. Um, in you know very I, I can always picture them and I, I you know you were talking about fatal attraction there where did this particular germ of an idea this heavyweight idea in the boxing ring where did this one come from for you well this was a strange idea in the sense that it was more of the type of book that I wanted to write as opposed to the specific plot um, I'd written several books that had um, that I think of as sort of uh, more complex thrillers with multiple narrative perspectives. Um, I often write books that bounce back and forth between uh, points of view from different characters. Um, often we're seeing one event described in two different ways. Um, I've also written a, a few books that have the um, timeline. So, you know, a, a book in which uh, there are two timelines, one 20 years earlier and one now, and they sort of catch up with one another. Um, and so I had for a while there wanted to write what I thought of, and I'm, I'm sort of um, getting a head start on, um, on the book off portion of this. I, I wanted to write what, <laughs> what I considered an Ira Levin thriller. In other words, a thriller where, um, you know, it happens in sort of real time and you're just getting the perspective of one character. So so essentially when you're reading this book, it is Abigail's story. When Abigail discovers something, you discover it as the reader. Um, you don't have special information. And she is simply sort of in peril and confused by what's going on. And you're along the, the ride with her. Um, it's a type of book that I wanted to do. Um, 
and oddly enough, um, I don't know why I thought this. I thought this might be a little more more simple or an easier type of book to to write. Um, and I don't and I don't think there is an easier type of uh, thriller to write. I mean, they're all they're all about structure and and um, when to surprise your readers and and all these difficult things that you have to put together. So, um, you know, it turned out to take me much longer. I, I wrote the first draft very fast, and then I the subsequent drafts just went on and on. Um, but anyway, so it was the type of thriller I wanted to write um, more than the the story itself. Than, a, the, yeah. than an actual idea. Yeah. That's, that's cool, though. Because I suppose the, when you get to be able to, to write and publish, you know, more than a couple of books, you get to your third or fourth or whatever it is, you can, you can I suppose you have the luxury to a certain degree, don't you, of going, okay, what what's the what's the thing i want to do what's the style i want to do maybe if if i want to break away from things i've done before and that must be quite nice i suppose <laughs> i think i've gotten away with that a little bit i think um you know i write standalones and um i haven't yeah. written a series book and uh, although i i suppose, you know i think i can't help but write a book that sounds like me i do try and um mix it up and and write you know some books that are more like a whodunit, some books that are more like a classic psychological thriller, or, or this book, which is more of a um, even a, a straight up thriller. Um, mm. And I also, but I was also rebelling, or um, rebelling against the idea of these these lengthy thrillers. I mean, I you know I've written several what I I think of as a lengthy thriller, which is eighty thousand to a hundred thousand words. Um, but I do a lot of um, a lot of my reading is in mid-century um, crime thrillers, both English and American, or uh, early part of the last century. And um, there's so many great classic mysteries that are that are really around fifty thousand, sixty thousand words, which is actually a great length for a mystery. I mean, I think um, you know. And then there were none by Agatha Christie. I think clocks in about sixty thousand words, and she, you know, she kills off all ten of her characters. Um, <laughs> Sorry for the spoiler alert, but you should you should know that all you should know that already. Um, it's kind of in the title, so I don't feel too bad about it. Um, no, you shouldn't. But anyway, you know, so so I am sort of jealous of these. Um, you know, sometimes you do have to have these complex backstories in your novels to get them up to around eighty thousand words. But you know, publishing trends come and go, and right now it's a it's a, a longer thriller um, era we are in. <laughs> for lack of a better word <laughs> no we'll take that longer th longer, longer thriller, thriller error. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and before we do the book off uh, i always like to ask my guests what they've been reading and enjoying of uh late so that you know we can get some other recommendations and i know the listeners love to to hear um what might be out there as well as your two fabulous books um peter m have you been um able to you know i, I know some writers don't read so much when they are in that writing process but have you been able to to read now that the novel has been delivered uh not a huge amount i'm i'm um involved in building a summer kitchen in my garden at the moment um and that that is that's been a wonderful escape from uh, writing and words and things what's a but, summer um, kitchen summer kitchen well it's it's um basically a kitchen which is semi-outdoors um um so that one can live most of the summer out of doors in the garden oh. uh 
in and out of the pool, um, barbecuing oh. uh, in the shade. Um, you know, it's um, all all those <laughs> lovely lifestyle things that um, you know we need, given the the the, the restrictions of the pandemic. Um, you know, it's the only thing that makes it bearable. Um, <laughs> but I, I have read um, a little. Um, I, I I I've been. Um, making my way through the Slow Horses series, Mick Heron's books, uh, which I understand they're, they're currently filming for a BBC TV series. They are. Um, um, which I look forward. Gary Oldman playing uh, the, Absolutely. the part of... Um, I can't remember his name, the character, but... Um, uh, Jackson Lamb. Because Jackson Lamb, that's who it is, yes. Um, so I, I'm very much looking forward to seeing that. I've been enjoying the books, um, they're very different, uh, in, uh, you know, from the, the usual kind of thriller crime story or spy book. Um, uh, they make you laugh a lot, um, and uh, they, they're they're quite shocking sometimes. Yeah, they um, are. <laughs> uh, uh, and 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 he he has no compunction about killing off regular characters, which uh, I I love because <laughs> it means you never know. You just never know what he's going to do next, um, and so it, it creates that tension. Um, but but I've enjoyed them. They've been a great diversion for me, mm. uh, following following the you know the end of the writing and you know working on the the, the summer kitchen and um, you know good. Yes, they're good. They're very good. They are. And and Mick was on um, on this podcast just a few episodes ago, actually talking about his right. latest one. Yeah. Um, no, I completely agree. I, I, they, they all, it's just the sort of the dark humour and and the, some of the shock factor that I love too. Actually, yeah. this book, Peter. Um, and what about you, Peter S? What have you been reading and, and enjoying recently, if indeed you have been? Yeah, I've been doing a fair amount of reading. I always, um, as as I said, I always you know read quite a bit of um, from dead authors. Um, but uh, a, a couple new books that I've enjoyed. I think uh, I really liked Anthony Horowitz's latest, The Moonflower Murders, mm-hmm. which are really fun. I mean, again, those are kind of plays on um, Golden Age mysteries. I enjoyed that one, and I enjoyed um, a debut uh, novelist, Alex uh, Pivese. I'm not sure I'm saying his name correctly, but he wrote uh, a book called Eight Detectives, um, or uh, The Eighth Detective, depending on what country you're in, um, which was, a, again, another sort of clever take on Golden Age uh, murder mysteries. Um, and then in terms of uh, older writers that I'm dipping into, I've been reading a lot of Josephine Tay, uh, fellow Scott, um, you know, the sort of mysterious uh, mystery writer, I think she wrote from sort of the 30s on through the, maybe through the 50s and 60s, I'm reading Miss Pym Disposes right now. She's very funny. Um, and and talk about, I mean, she, she wrote about half dozen books or 10 books or something like that. And they're all quite different. They're all mysteries, but they're all have a, a very different feel. She's famous, of course, for Daughter of Time, the historical um, mystery in which a, an ins- her inspector is laid up in bed and um, delves into uh, Richard, uh, Richard III, I believe. Um, his history um but anyway so i've been enjoying those and her her name again so i don't know josephine tay uh her last name is t-e-y yeah my mother was a great fan of josephine tay that i I remember rows of those books (laughs) on the bookshelf in my house my mother was a great reader and she loved those yeah they're terrific they're and they're very um they're very of their time and kind of jaunty in a way um but quite uh, jaunty and cynical at the same time 
Um, they have a kind of a, a 20s, 30s feel to them. Um, but they're, but you know, but they also have a, um, a psychological depth um, that I think, you know, she really led the way to sort of the Ruth Rendells and the P.D. James and, um, you know, that, that bridge between Agatha Christie and them in terms of, um, you know, she wrote about depression and, uh, psychological, um, uh, issues. I mean, she's, she's very good. Hmm. That sounds great. Thank you for those. And why didn't I pick her for my book off? I don't know, but, um, well, no, yeah. I feel like I've just, I've just done a good job of selling her. So it's almost like you're warming up. Peter. I know. You I know, know what I mean? It's like, it's like you're sort of getting, getting <laughs> I just hope I'm not, I didn't sort of, you know, outdo myself and it's all going to be a letdown from here but not at all no we'll find out hey folks i'm mark Marin from the wtf podcast and this episode is brought to you by kleenex ultra soft tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season i love the change of seasons but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather kleenex ultra soft tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved so fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin for this allergy season grab kleenex and face allergies head on Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, indeed we will, because it is time for the book off. This is where each of you gets three minutes to tell us about a book that you really love and think that we should all read. Uh, you don't have to use your three minutes, guys, so don't feel like you have to sort of drag it out. But if you go over the three-minute mark, uh, we will be stopping you in your tracks, yeah. either with... I need to reach over here and get the... The bicycle right. or the um, <laughs> the school bell. So let's uh, let's find out who's going to go first and who's going to go second. Um, Peter 1, Peter M, would you like to go first or second? I don't mind at all. Quite happy to go first. You'll get, you'll step up to the plate. Okay, very good. Yeah. Uh, and Peter uh, Swanson, would you like to be honked out or rung out at your three minute mark? <laughs> well, I think honked out. Okay. <laughs> um, that means uh, Peter May, you get the school bell. Okay. Um, okay, okay. As I say, you don't have to use them all, but uh, you'll know when your time is up when that comes clanging in. Um, before we start the timer, could you just tell us the the book that you're going to be putting forward? 
for me, it's the Beastly Beatitudes of Baltazar B by J.P. Don Levy. Oh, what a title. All righty. Well, I'm putting three <laughs> minutes on the clock then, and uh, you have three minutes uninterrupted to tell us all about that book. Over to you. Right. I was um, 18 years old and working as a cub reporter in my first job in newspapers when a colleague lent me this book. And I can say without equivocation that it changed my life. The story itself is at times deeply moving and at other times jaw-achingly funny. It is both life-affirming and tragic. And as a young man who had barely been out of Scotland and was just starting to make his way in the world, the beastly Beatitudes introduced me to places and people beyond my ken, a character growing up in Paris, the son of wealth sent to boarding school in England, then cutting his teeth on life and love at Trinity College, Dublin. The pain of finding love, then losing it in the most devastating of circumstances. It made me weep unashamedly and made me laugh until it hurt. It did everything a good story should do. It engaged all my emotions. But more than that, it was deliciously liberating in a way that would have earned the disapproval of my English teacher father and the succession of English teachers at school who spent 12 years dinning the rules of grammar into my thick skull. Because J.P. Dunlevy broke them all. Not because he didn't know them, of course he did. But it was the, that knowledge that gave him the confidence to break them and gave me the confidence to follow his example. Sentences don't need verbs. Nouns don't need adjectives. And sometimes adjectives don't need nouns. Words should not only communicate, they should make music. In combination, they create cadence and melody. They provide a rhythm for the narrative. They should never get in the way or become more important than the story. One critic described... Don Levy's writing as an intricate prose style characterised by minimal punctuation, strings of sentence fragments, frequent shifts, shifts of tense and lapses from standard third-person narration into first-person stream of consciousness. Without Don Levy's example, I would never have written The Black House, which alternates between third- and first-person narration, exploring themes of love and human, human frailty, regret and betrayal. And I have running battles with copy editors on every manuscript I write over my sentence fragments and tense shifts. But you don't have to be a writer to be moved and inspired by the beastly Beatitudes. Indulge yourselves, wallow in the poetry of the prose, the humanity of its characters and the power of its storytelling. You won't regret it. Oh, fantastic. Two and a half minutes, Peter. Look at that. Wow. Boom. Mic no, drop out of there. Whoa. <laughs> um, love that pitch. Want to come back and talk about it in just a moment. Take a breather. Have a rest. Um, and we're going to put three minutes back on the clock for you, Peter Swanson. Before we start that, just tell us the book that you're putting forward. Uh, the book I'm putting forward is A Kiss Before Dying by uh, the aforementioned Ira Levin. <laughs> uh, three minutes over to you, Peter. Well, first off, I want to say a little bit about Ira Levin's career um, and how incredibly uh, jealous. I'm not jealous of writers in general, but I'm very jealous of Ira Levin's career. So I think he, he only wrote um, sort of uh, about eight novels, um, but each one is this sort of brilliant um, constructed idea. I'm sure people um, are aware of him because of Rosemary's Baby, which to me is the, is the best horror suspense novel ever written. Um, and not only that, but it was turned into, I think, the, my, my favorite horror film of all time, 
um, the 68 version uh, with Mia Farrow is terrific. Um, he also came up with Stepford Wives, which is uh, ridiculous, but incredibly fun. And Boys from Brazil, um, another great sort of uh, semi-science fiction, semi-supernatural um, suspense um, novel. And then the other thing that Ira Levin um, did, which I'm very jealous of, because um, it's sort of my, my pipe dream, is he wrote a great stage thriller called Death Trap. Um, in fact, I, I think that's one of the hardest genres to write, um, evidenced by the fact that there are um, so few great ones. I mean, I think there's Wait Until Dark, um, Dial Him for Murder, um, Angel Street, and Death Trap is just one of the best. But um, but I'm going to talk about his first book, his debut novel, which is a sort of straight-up psychological thriller called A Kiss Before Dying. Um, it's about uh, a young man named Bud Corliss, um, who is a sociopath who dreams, um, a working-class sort of sociopath in America who dreams of um, making himself um, better off, uh, rising in the social ranks. Um, and I'm, and it's a truly great book. And I'm going to um, give a, a few little reasons that I've written down. Um, first of all, it has murder mystery elements, but it's it's basically a why done it as opposed to a who done it. And it's very psychologically astute and does an amazing job of sort of getting into Bud's um, brain brain space. Um, it's filled with surprises, but it has one of the all-time great twists that sort of happens midway through the book. Um, and I guarantee you, you will never see it coming. Um, I love the structure of this book because it, um, it's, it's Bud's involvement with three separate women and each, um, and their sisters. And, uh, there are three sections in the book and in each section, um, is his sort of interaction with his sister. Um, and each section itself is almost like a little thriller. So there's rising tension at the end of um, each section, and then you sort of um, have almost a, a climax to the story, and then you go into the next section. So it's almost like three little thrillers in one, which is brilliant. Um, oh, I knew I was going to run out of time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I sensed you know, it. I sensed uh, it that as I was rambling on. I thought, I and I think Peter, you. I think you timed yourself out quite brilliantly. I think you. Uh, I think you had practiced a little more than me. So, <laughs> I have to say, I I was glancing down at the clock at, at about two and a half minutes, thinking, no, I know he's got a lot more. No, I know he's got a lot I more know. to say here. <laughs> I really, yes, I sh I should have practiced more, but um, but anyway, I ho I hope I got my uh, point across. I think you I, very much did. I I kept mine down to two and a half minutes so that you could have another thirty. <laughs> no, no, you that, no. That's how it's working, is it? You I will share the time. It. You're being too kind. <laughs> Thank you both for those because they were really great. And and Peter, we could have, you know, listened on because I was totally engrossed. Um, let me talk about Don Levy's book first. Um, what an opening to say essentially it changed your life peter i mean you know when you when a book has had that effect that's you've got to sit up and listen um but i love the the description of it I, I don't know this book i don't know either of these books i have to say um jaw achingly funny and also made you weep and you kind of think wow okay if a book's got that in it <laughs> that's quite a skill right <laughs> oh yeah i mean it was the first of his books that i read and i, I you know, I, I, mean, I read his other work, and I don't think he ever came quite as close 
to uh, the perfection that he achieved in uh, the Beastly Beatitudes. He wrote um, the Ginger Man, right? Yes. Oh well, the Ginger Man was. I think it was an earlier book, um, uh, and, and I think he kind of borrowed a little from the Ginger Man for uh, Beastly Beatitudes. Well, that's that's but the I, book of his that I quite love, but I haven't read your. But yeah, I, I love Ginger Man. Right. Well, I, you know, I, it's I. I suppose having read uh, uh, Balthazar first, um, I, I found I, I didn't enjoy uh, Ginger Man nearly yeah, as yeah. much. Um, I, I should probably have read them the other way right. around. Uh, but um, Beatitudes was just, um, I, I mean, literally, literally reduced me to tears at, at times. There, there there was a chapter end in that book that was like an arrow through the heart. Um, it was so painful. Uh, and 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 I suppose you could have seen it coming, but you just, just didn't want it to happen. Um, and, and, and moments of such um, uh, Tom Sharp-esque, farce uh, that that just you know belly laughs you're yeah. sitting in a room on your own roaring and laughing uh, I mean that you know and I think any writer who can take you from you know one extreme to the other like that is has uh, got some extraordinary ability oh, completely and and also the fact that you know you said he broke the rules uh, because you, and it, re it reminded me of Les Dawson who was such an amazing pianist and yet played the piano badly but you can only play it that badly and get those laughs if you are good enough and i know and so exactly. that sort of yeah. rule-breaking comparison about the fact that you said that he he knew what he was doing but he Absolutely. he did his own thing and that that just made me think yeah i love that it was a, it was a revelation to me at the time when i, I mean i was you know, I, I don't know. I, I was maybe nineteen years old, um, and uh, you know, a, an aspiring writer, um, just starting out. And I, the the fact that you you here was somebody who was breaking all the rules, the golden mm. rules that my father was an English teacher, you know, <laughs> and I used to give him my early manuscripts to read, and he would mark them up in the margins like my English teacher, you know, my correcting my spelling and my punctuation and stuff. Um, so I, I was brought up with, he, he wrote the definitive um, uh, English grammar book that was used in schools in the 60s. Um, and, you know, I was brought up with these, and, it, they, you know, in a, in a sense, it, they were like a straitjacket. <laughs> yeah. and, and reading Don Levy uh, was so liberating. It, I just suddenly realised, oh, yeah, I know all this stuff, but, you know, I, I can be free of yeah. it. If I won, um, yeah. it was a revelation. Totally. Uh, and Peter, to, to, to your book of choice, I think what was what was nice about your pitch, even though it meant you slightly ran out of time, is that you, you gave quite a lot of context for Ira Levin, which I think is, which is good because I don't think I'd realised quite, well, quite how much he'd done and almost how little he'd done because he said only eight novels, but yet, you know, it sounds like he's just hit a winner every time and this being the debut it's quite an interesting choice then to, to, to you know of all the eight um to go with this one but it sounds fascinating well it's sort of in my genre i mean i as a yeah. psychological thriller and um what's what's interesting to me is he wrote that as his debut and i think he kind of hit it out of the park and then um and then never wrote another uh straight up thriller like that again he sort of went on to uh different areas so i'm sort of impressed by that um 
that he maybe he just felt like he got it right because um, it, it really is a surprising and devious book um, that well you've definitely made me want to read it because of the twist now yeah and um, it was made into a, um, a couple fairly mediocre films but um, uh, one in 1956 with Robert Wagner, who played a very good um, young psychopath, and then made in a, a 19, early 90s film with Matt Dillon, uh, neither of which are, are particularly good. But um, but the book is terrific. Oh well, I I love the the description of the you know the, the, the it's almost like three little thrillers in or, or you know little thrillers in each in each section you know that that in itself makes me think wow that's a skill to, i love to, that uh, so much about that book and i think that's what really struck me to the point where i basically kind of stole that idea for um my uh, second novel um the kind worth killing which which has that a similar structure um mm. and uh so it's just quite brilliant it doesn't have the I mean, I think sometimes with thrillers, you get a little bit of that. You see how the thing's unfolding. Um, and by the time you get to the big finish, you're kind of, um, you kind of know where it's um, going to wind up. And this is a book that you never know where it's going to wind up. Yeah. Did did Ira Levin write a book called something like This Perfect Day? Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a dystopian uh, future yeah. book, which is actually, I, I, very few people know that. Um uh, and, and it's it's very good. I mean, it's it's you know like all his books. I really enjoyed. Yeah, that. it's amazing. Um, and it's been sort of forgotten. So he you know he dipped his toe in a lot of things, and one of them was um, a dystopian sort of science fiction novel. Um, again, he only wrote one. Um, this perfect amazing day. though, because that I really don't think that happens much or has happened much with the, with one author to do such a range of different genres, but but only do one in each genre. You know, that's that's quite rare i would say yeah i mean it, it is it is very rare and i think he also i mean he came up through television um and then through uh playwriting and he and he wrote a number of um teleplays as well and the sort of america in the 50s when they, they were doing all the um uh, the plays on television um so maybe he was sort of an idea guy and he would come up with one great idea and then um and then do it and then you know but it's remarkable. I mean, all his books are good, ex except for the last one, which is um, a sequel to Rosemary's Baby, which you are um, both uh, recommended to avoid at all costs. <laughs> to be honest, I feel like I probably could have said I'll avoid that yeah. based on the fact that it's a sequel to Rosemary's Baby. I don't know the situation. Maybe maybe um, he needed money. I don't know. But hey, maybe, maybe so. But uh, He needed to um, make himself a summer kitchen. <laughs> but we'll definitely be checking out Kiss before dying though um uh if and rosemary's baby is great that's that's the only one of his i've read i think um thank you both for these pictures i i i love them both i want to read both of these books now which is which is always a sign that you know that, that, that you've you've said all the right things but i gotta i gotta pick one to take home um toughy though and i think today I'm going to take JP Donlevy <laughs> the beastly beatitudes of Balthazar B have I said that right Peter beatitudes, beatitudes sorry <laughs> I, knew, I knew I wouldn't get it right it's such a great title it is a great it's title a yeah school, really, it is it? a great yeah. title um uh yes I'm just I'm any book that can make you weep and then make you laugh is, is just right 
you know, right up my street. Um, having said that, I've got to read a bit more I-11, so thank you for flying the flag for him, Peter. The Night Gate by Peter May is out now. It's published by River Run and Every Value Break by Peter Swantz is also out now. That's published by Faber. They are both absolutely fabulous reads and we suggest you get yourselves a copy so that you can enjoy them as much as we have. Peter, Peter, what an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you for your recommendations and I hope that uh, very soon um, we'll all be able to be in the same place. That would be nice, wouldn't it? It would be nice. That would be great. Yeah. But thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Pleasure. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.